Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today we've got Kara Dansky and Julia Beck, who will be discussing Marilyn Fry's The Politics of Reality. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Julia, for being here to talk about this book um, for Radical Feminist Perspectives. I'll get us started. And uh, Julia and I have talked about how we've divided the book up to talk with you all today. And I just want to start by saying, um, so this is the book we're discussing, The Politics of Reality. I just want to say, I love, love, love this book. I love this book so much. I first read this book in college and it would have been in the context of a women's studies class. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember reading it. And I just wanna say at the outset, th this, this is the book that, that woke me up to radical feminism, to feminism in general, and to sisterhood and the importance of sisterhood. And I revisited the book briefly, specifically the essay on oppression, which Julia is going to discuss in writing my book, The Abolition of Sex, last year. But other than that, I have not revisited it in probably 30 years. And reading this book to prepare for today's session was, I, I don't have a word to describe it other than joyful. And as Julia and I were preparing for this, I told her that I feel like reading this book for me, it has the feeling of swimming in perfectly temperatured water on a beautiful, beautiful day. Um, it's just a joy. It's a joy to read and I hope everyone reads it. And I hope you enjoy today's session. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that metaphor. It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also I'm very happy to be doing this with Julia herself because Julia and I haven't seen each other in so many years and it's so nice to see each other virtually if not in person. Yeah, likewise. I miss you. <laughs> you. Um, okay, so I will start with uh, just talking a little bit about the preface and introduction, because all of it's important. Everything she says in this book is important. So she's talking in the preface mainly about the limitations of space and time. Uh, she, the book was published in 1983, and it contains a series of essays and lectures that she gave mainly in the 1970s. And she's talking about that fact and the fact that she's necessarily limited by geography, space, and time. And um, so with that, I'll just get into reading a little section and then say a few things about what I think about it. She says in the preface, these essays are time bound and culture bound which should not need saying, perhaps, but does. The feminist thought and theory of college-educated white women has been far more accessible in print so far than that of women who have not enjoyed those privileges nor suffered the distinctive set of limitations that come with them. This work is undeniably part of that body of white and college-educated writing. It stands on those privileges and within those limits as well as on and within the privileges and limits more particular to my own individual history and situation. To readers who might be able to overlook the ways in which my thought is limited by race and class bound imagination, I have to ask you to take absolutely seriously both the warning and the invitation implicit in my occasional reminders that there exists a vast variety of women and women's lives which I know just enough about to point to, but which I cannot speak from or for, to readers who could never overlook these limitations because of the insult to what you know, I not only invite your criticism, but also ask that you use your own creativity and insight to make the best of mine, to carry out the translations and modifications which will make this work as useful to you as it can be. So, Reading that, I reflected on something I saw recently, I think it was on Twitter, that a woman said that I really appreciated, which was in the context of some of the infighting that we've seen within radical feminism. And her comment went something like this. We need to be our shrewdest critics and our fiercest defenders. And I love that because if our movement is to succeed, 
we have to keep getting the analysis better and better. And the best way to do that is to be critical of ourselves and each other. And at the same time, we have to defend each other as women living in a male supremacist society. This matters a lot because we can be our best critics. We really can. And I love her invitation to criticize because I think that she means it sincerely. And I, I think that she means it when she says, please critique my analysis and make it better and use your own creativity. Okay, we have to be very mindful of time. So I'm going to very quickly say something about the introduction. The introduction is very brief and it's about how feminism helps us make sense of women's lives. So I'll just read her briefly here. One of the great powers of feminism is that it goes so far in making the experiences and lives of women intelligible, trying to make sense of one's own feelings, motivations, desires, ambitions, actions, and reactions without taking into account the forces which maintain the subordination of women to men is like trying to explain why a marble stops rolling without taking friction into account. What feminist theory is about, to a great extent, is just identifying those forces or some range of them or kinds of them and displaying the mechanics of their applications to women as a group or caste and to individual women. The measure of the success of the theory is just how much sense it makes and what did not make sense before. So this is part of why this book was so helpful for me in, in waking up. And um, when I read it in college, it, it was just a light bulb. It was like a smack upside the head of, of why life as a woman in male supremacy makes so much sense. It just made sense when I read this book. I'm just gonna say very quickly and then I'm gonna turn it over to Julia. Um, Fry includes a note on the text. And this is so Marilyn Fry of her. She goes into like a couple pages of explaining why she uses the language she uses, the grammar she uses, spelling and punctuation. I don't know if this little section of her introduction will do the work that she wants it to do for readers, but I love it. I just love it. I just found it to be so generous because she's trying to explain to readers why she communicates in exactly the way she does. And it was just very generous and touching of her that she did that. So that was the preface and introduction. And uh, the, the very first essay is on oppression. And I'll hand it over to Julia for that. Thank you, Kara. It's a really nice um, quote, a few quotes that you shared. These are also the quotes that really stuck out to me. And it's clear to me that Fry wants to be understood. She has a lot of ideas and she has a lot of analysis and philosophy about the world and women's place in it. Uh, and I found her ideas so accessible. And uh, this is in a stark comparison to some other philosophers or theorists who are currently celebrated, for example, Judith Butler. In comparison to Butler, Fry is so easy to understand. I will say there were some times when I had to reread a sentence or two to really get the idea that she was trying to communicate to me. But on the whole, she uses a lot of examples to make her points very clear. And if you look at her theory as a theory, you will be confronted with a strong challenge because it's so hard to find a hole in the theory. <laughs> as she says, um, yeah, that's the strength of feminism is because it just makes sense. Uh, so I was unable to actually get a copy of the physical book. I used a PDF online. Uh, so this is a good thing for some women who might not have the book. You can find this online as a PDF. So without further ado, let's begin with the oppression essay. Um, Marilyn Fry wants to be uh, clear in the definitions of the words that she uses. She wants to ask, what does oppression really mean? Uh, in what situations or contexts can we use this word? Who is oppressed? She says, it's a fundamental claim of feminism that women are oppressed. So 
But when we say this, when women, uh, when women and feminists make this statement, people often say in response, well, men are oppressed too. And a lot of men use the evidence that they cannot cry to prove that they are oppressed or they're excluded from things. Or sometimes people tell them no, and that's proof that they are oppressed. But Marilyn Fry says this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is nonsense. Human beings can be miserable without being oppressed. That's not what oppression means. She says the reason why men can't cry, for example, is because their authority and social dominance depends on this kind of emotional restraint. Of course, men can get angry, but if they cry, they will seem weak, emotional, like a woman in the eyes of other men. Men's emotional restraint is part of a structure that is oppressive to women. So there you go. She says, when the frustrations and stresses of being a man are used as evidence to prove that the oppressors are oppressed by their oppressing, the word oppression is being stretched to meaninglessness. So what does this word really mean? Well, in order for us to find out who's really oppressed, let's look at some common characteristics or some common experiences. She offers the situation of the double bind. She says, people who are really oppressed are caught in a double bind. It's a situation in which your options are limited and all of your options will bring a penalty or hurt you, censure you or deprive you of something. For example, she has many examples to prove her points, which I totally appreciate. For example, it is often required of oppressed people to smile and be cheerful. If we comply, we participate in our own erasure. We erase ourselves, our feelings, our perception of the world even. If we do not smile, we are perceived as angry, as dangerous or difficult to work with. Uh, a good example in the current time is resting bitch face. It's when a woman doesn't smile all the time she's suddenly seen as a bitch because she, she doesn't smile. It's a double bind. Another example of this is when it comes to uh, rape uh, and rape apologists or rape apologism. If a woman is raped and she has been heterosexually active, then it is presumed that she liked it since her activity is presumed to show that she likes sex. If she has not been heterosexually active, it's presumed that she liked it because she is sexually repressed or sexually frustrated. So here Fry shows that both activity and inactivity in heterosexual sex, both of these are proof that you wanted to be raped and hence you weren't really raped at all. You can't win. Quote, you are caught in a bind, caught between systematically related pressures. Women are caught like this by networks of forces and barriers, and each of these factors exists in a complex tension with every other, penalizing or prohibiting all of the apparently available options. And to further make her case, she offers a fantastic uh, metaphor, and I hope that this can be carried into the lives of the women watching to think about oppression in this way. She has uh, the idea of a birdcage. This is similar to the idea of um, Plato's cave, if you are familiar with this kind of philosophy. But Marilyn Fry offers the birdcage metaphor, which is specific to women's experiences. So if you look at a birdcage and you look at just one wire and you inspect the wire and analyze it, but you don't look at any of the others, you just see the one wire and you don't understand why the bird does not simply fly away. But if you step back and see the whole cage, you immediately understand why the bird cannot fly. The bird is immobilized. The bird is surrounded by a network of systematically related barriers, none of which on its own would be an obstacle of flight, but by their relations to each other, they are as confining as the solid walls of a dungeon. So this is what oppression is. This is how Marilyn Fry defines oppression. 
a network of forces and barriers systematically related, which immobilize, reduce, and mold women and the lives we live. I think that's a very um, uh, usable definition that we can apply to any political debate that we find ourselves in. And then still people say women are not oppressed. Uh, we're not really oppressed, especially if the woman is a white middle-class cis woman. I'm sure we see that a lot. Many people do not believe that woman is a category of oppressed people because many people are fooled by the uh, forced assimilation of women into different systems of class and race, which organize men. Here, Marilyn Fry has the idea that women are not only a class of people, but we also are in a caste system that goes beyond uh, the levels of race and class and ethnic group or political group. No matter where we are, no matter what relationships we have with men or our loyalties to class or race or what have you, um, we all have one thing in common. It, besides our female biology, it's, it's the kind of service that we're supposed to provide to men. It's the woman's sector that we find ourselves in, which is defined by the function that we're supposed to serve men and men's interests. She says, it's possible that women's independent interests overlap with men's, but at every race or class level and across race or class line, men do not serve women as women serve men. Um, I'll try to wrap this up in Julia, a few moments. Julia, yeah? yeah, just on the topic of time, we're already so far over what we planned. There, there's so much to cover in this book. It's great. It's great that you went through all of that because the, the essay on oppression is, is maybe one of the most important. So it's brilliant, but we're okay. already completely over what we already planned for. Oh no, okay. Well, hmm, let me see. I'll end by saying this. Uh, women are oppressed as women. Men can be oppressed too as members of certain racial or economic groups or classes, um, but men are not oppressed as men. There you go, on to you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's so good, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much, there's so much to talk about. So the second essay in the work is, is on sexism. And one of my absolute favorite things about Marilyn Fry's thinking and writing is that she allows for no assumptions whatsoever. She doesn't allow any word to be undefined. And so when she realized that she wanted to write about sexism, that required her to gain an understanding of what sexism is. So the essay on sexism is just that, what it is and what it isn't. And she explains that this entire project started because as she awoke to the realities of the sexist world we live in, she <coughs> She started to point out sexism to family and friends, but what she saw as sexist, others did not. So she realized that she would have to start explaining it to them. And she says this, as the critic and as the initiator of the topic, I was the one on whom the burden of proof fell. It was I who had to explain and convince. So I'm thinking here of how much integrity she has. She knows that she wants to persuade the people in her life that the world is sexist. And so she first realizes that it's on her to figure out how to do that. And she assumes the burden of first figuring it all out for herself so that she can persuade others. To me, there is just something so ethical, so admirable about taking up that burden. She doesn't just throw up her hands and call things sexist and hope that people will see. She wants to make people see and she is willing to assume the responsibility of taking the time to first figure it out to explain to others what's going on. So she starts by going into the pervasiveness of sex marking. She calls it sex marking, by which she means how absolutely relevant sex is in just about every moment of our lives. And I'm just going to read really quickly. Sex identification intrudes into every moment of our lives and discourse, no matter what the supposedly primary focus or topic of the moment is. Elaborate, systematic, ubiquitous, and redundant marking of a distinction between two sexes of humans and most animals is customary and obligatory. One never can ignore it. 
Examples of sex marking behavior patterns abound. A couple enters a restaurant. The head waiter or hostess addresses the man and does not address the woman. A physician addresses a man by name and surname and honorific, for example, Mr. Baxter, and addresses the woman by given name, Nancy. You congratulate your friend, a hug, a slap on the back, shaking hands, kissing. One of the things which determines which of these you do is your friend's sex. In everything one does, one has two complete repertoires of behavior, one for interactions with women and one for interactions with men. Greeting, storytelling, order giving, order receiving, negotiating, gesturing deference or dominance, encouraging, challenging, asking for information. One does all of these things differently depending on whether the relevant others are male or female. So she goes into explaining why this is all very important. We just operate in the world on the basis of sex. And she gets into a very interesting discussion about socialization and gender, which are very relevant to us today. And she ends, this is a very long essay, but she ends by saying this, the term sexist characterizes cultural and economic structures which create and enforce the elaborate and rigid patterns of sex marking and sex announcing, which divide the species along lines of sex into dominators and subordinates. Individual acts and practices are sexist, which reinforce and support those structures, either as culture or as shapes taken on by the enculturated animals. Resistance to sexism, is that which undermines those structures by social and political action and by projects of reconstruction and revision of ourselves. And as I read this, I just couldn't help but think that her definition of sexism, which she's giving us from the 1970s, really maps helpfully onto how we conceive of gender today, right? It's all a prison that's based on the material reality of sex. So, Julia, on to you. <laughs> that was very concise, very pointed. I'll try to do the same. <laughs> uh, the next essay is called The Problem That Has No Name. This essay was originally published in 1975 with a different title. It was originally titled Male Chauvinism, A Conceptual Analysis. And I have to laugh about this because of course, Marilyn Fry is a philosopher, she's a, she's a theorist, and yet she uses her kind of creations of theory to poke fun at <laughs> men who think they're little gods. Anyway, um, when we talk about feminism, a lot of people have a pushback and they say, well, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. Uh, but humanism still creates a hierarchy where humans are at the top of the food chain they are the superior being over the entire animal kingdom. And therefore it's morally acceptable to treat members of other species with contempt or condescension. Marilyn Fry looks at this and compares this to phallism. She calls male chauvinism, phallism. Um, I will say this is, this is a new word for me, uh, but phallism or male chauvinism is the superiority of man. He is on the top of the world, at the center of the universe, and everything and everyone else is below him or revolves around him. And through this worldview, it is morally acceptable for men to treat other people, certain other people, with contempt or condescension. And these other people include women, but also infants, the elderly, the ill, people who are labeled insane or criminal, and of course, members of subordinated races. Um, therefore, the phallist, the male chauvinist, does not treat women as people. This is an exercise of his self-appointed power and authority over everything and everyone. Some phallists, male chauvinists, accept this worldview as a fact. They do not treat women as people. And then some women follow along with this, they are worked into the position of asking to be granted 
personhood. This is a manipulation. Fry says, the question is not whether or not women are people. Of course we're people. The question is, does the phallist, the male chauvinist, treat women as inhuman or subhuman with the full awareness that people are, uh, that women are people? So that, that's the question here. Does he knowingly treat women uh, with condescension or contempt? Uh, men who deny that women are people attempt to take control over concepts in general. So he has the authority to say women are not people. He excludes women from the conceptual framework of personhood. This is where her writing gets a little more theor theoretical and philosophical. So I'll try to make it clear. Um, the effect of treating women not as people. The effect of this is not simply the exclusion of female people from the rights or their duties of full persons, but this also ensures that our objections to the exclusion simply do not fit in the resulting conceptual scheme. So as an example, she says, or I could offer an example, a woman can tell a man to stop doing something, stop following me, stop touching me, stop interrupting me. But if the man is a phallist, a male chauvinist, he will not understand why this being wants to be treated like a person. Her protest will not have a place in his understanding of the world, his world. So since the woman demands fair treatment, but this is nonsensical to the man, the man will likely respond with nonsense. He'll call her a bitch, call her crazy, he'll ignore her protest and he'll continue whatever he's doing. Because she's not a person, why would he treat her like a person? So Fry says, if woman as a concept is excluded from personhood, if these things are mutually exclusive, that means women are also excluded from the fields of philosophy, theory, morality, ethics, anything that creates meaning in the world, anything that makes definitions. This exclusion of women from these fields of thought and uh, conceptual creation is immoral. And <laughs> she ends this uh, essay by saying something really funny. She says, thus the phallist, the male chauvinist, confines himself in a conceptual closet with the worst of moral company. And he has taken great pains to ensure that his escape will not be abetted by any woman. <laughs> so men actually exclude themselves from the fabulous ideas of women by excluding women from the fields which create ideas. <laughs> On to you, Kara. Okay, that was great. Um, okay, so the next essay is called In and Out of Harm's Way, Arrogance and Love. And I think this is probably the longest essay in the book and there's no way to do it justice. But in this, Fry is essentially encouraging us to go deep into the forces that oppress us and then imagine who we as women might be if those forces didn't exist. So I'll just read from the introduction. And there's a lot here. Most of this essay is devoted to constructing an account of some of the mechanisms of the exploitation and enslavement of women by men in phallocratic culture. Understanding such things is obviously important in a general way to feminist theory and strategies. It is essential, as they say, to know your enemy. But there's a more specific need of feminist theorists and activists which these analyses also address at another level. This is the need to locate a point of purchase for a radical feminist vision. The accounts here of the mechanisms of exploitation and enslavement yield up a vivid picture of a kind of harm characteristically done the victims of these operations. Seeing these things as harmful is fundamental to my belief that women's being subjected to such machinations is an evil. 
this is a place where a feminist politics can begin, but it cannot end here. When we see the effects of these machinations as harm, we implicitly invoke a contrast between the victims and the female human animal unharmed, unharmed at least by these particular processes. Although such an animal may be an unknown in contemporary human experience, we are committed to do at least to an abstract conception of her. More than an abstract conception is needed if we are not simply to condemn, but to resist effectively and escape. For that, we need a revolutionary vision, which in turn requires that we have rich images of such an animal. Feminist imaginings of women not harmed by men's exploitation and enslavement, like the similar imaginings of other revolutionary visionaries, have often been malnourished on sentimentality or contempt. We soar on the evidence of women's achievements and dreams of Amazon perfection, and we sink in the evidence of our mediocrity and the morass of our own internalized woman-hating. If it is important to imagine women untouched by phallocratic machinations, then we must take care to discover what we can know here and now on which these imaginings can be fed. The analyses in the body of this essay tell us some of what we need to know. They suggest general correctives to poor vision. They enhance our understanding of the harm done women by the processes of subordination and enslavement, and so facilitate our understanding of the creature who is harmed. The harm lies in what these processes do to women. The analyses make clearer what these processes produce as product. Understanding something of the stages and goals of the processing, one can see what shapes and qualities it imposes. This in turn, suggests something of the nature of the being which is processed. One can reason that this being would not have had these shapes and those qualities if left unmolested. This sort of thinking back through phallocratic processes turns out to provide valuable clues for the feminist visionary. So what she's doing here is she's, she's making us go really deep into the processes that harm us. And it's a painful essay to read because it's very explicit. <clears throat> she spends a lot of time talking about many of the ways in which men as a class harm women as a class. And the reason that she does this is because she wants us to have a vision of what women can be, how we can imagine ourselves if we were not harmed by these processes. And the processes that she discusses include coercion, exploitation, oppression, and enslavement in which she includes heterosexual marriage. Then she goes on to talk about what she calls the arrogant eye, by which she means the ways in which men see themselves as the center and see us as existing outside the center to the extent that we exist to them at all. Almost all of the entire essay is basically about how men see us as existing when we suit them in some way, as for example, wives or whores. Otherwise, we're irrelevant to them. Then she starts to get into ways that women might choose to see ourselves and each other without all of these forces and burdens being placed on us. We might be able to see ourselves as existing independent of men, and then we might find a way to love ourselves and each other. So I'm just gonna read quickly how she concludes the essay. <clears throat> we need to know women as independent, subjectively in our own beings and in our appreciation of others. If we are to know it in ourselves, I think we may have to be under the gaze of the loving eye. And the loving eye here, um, she's addressed previously, the loving eye means women's loving eye toward other women in whatever form that takes. The eye which presupposes our independence, 
the loving eye does not prohibit a woman's experiencing the world directly, does not force her to, experiencing, to experience it by way of the interested interpretations of the seer in whose visual field she moves. In this situation, she can experience directly in her bones the contingent character of her relations to all others and to nature. If we are to know women's independence in the being of others, I think we may have to cast a loving eye toward them and wait and see. And I just think it's a beautiful conclusion to a, to a very difficult chapter, which is mostly about men's ugliness toward us and concludes in ways that talk about how, how women can see ourselves and each other in a purely loving way. On to you, Julia. I would just really like to comment that Fry's encouragement of women's creativity is so wonderful because I understand this as the key to being um, more free. It's one of the keys to our liberation. If we can actually imagine ourselves liberated, what does that look like? It reminds me a lot of some other writings that I've read by other uh, feminists. And in fact, as I was reading this book, I was reminded of writings by Andrea Dworkin, um, uh, actually Lear Keith even, and uh, Sheila Jeffries as well. It, it's like similar ideas, but packed in a way that is a little bit different here, a little bit different there, and still so applicable. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of creativity anyway. Also, Mary Daly says this, and D. Graham. <laughs> okay. Anyway, next essay is on anger. It's called A Note on Anger. And I think a few weeks back, Julia Long did a presentation about this on WDI. Um, so if I don't touch on everything, please also uh, listen to her presentation as well. Okay, so Marilyn Fry makes a connection between respect and anger. Women's anger is not well-received by men. We probably all know this to be true, uh, but also sometimes women don't receive other women's anger very well. Attention is turned not to what we are angry about, but to the project of calming us down and to the topic of our mental stability. Um, she makes a reference to a time when a black woman was angry at her and she could not understand why this other woman was angry. And she noticed how her thought process went from, I don't understand this anger. Hmm, this other woman must be crazy. And she noticed, wait a minute, this is telling me something. What does this mean? Of course, there's a reason for this other woman to be angry. Why am I seeing her crazy? So let's talk about anger then. She says, the frustrating situations which generate anger are those situations in which you see yourself not simply as obstructed, but as wronged. So your anger implies that you have been offended. There was an offense. Anger also implies a claim to domain. Now, what she means by this is that our purposes, our activities, what we're doing, what we're thinking or whatever, in the world require and create a web of objects, spaces, attitudes, interests, things that are worthy of respect. And that the topic of our anger is rightfully within this web, our domain. For example, uh, I'm building a bookshelf. I'm using a hammer, nails, whatever. And you come into the room and take the hammer away. I angrily demand that you give my hammer back. There is something that I demand that you respect my use of the hammer. It's within my web. It's in my domain for me to use. So my anger is justified. When we express anger at someone or in the vicinity of other people, it's kind of like doing a speech act. Uh, a speech act is when you say something like, I promise, or I apologize. You don't just report something about yourself, 
you also begin to change the connection between yourself and the other person or the other people. And this a speech act requires cooperation from the other person. So it requires a it, it requires a response or what she calls uptake. When I say I apologize, the other person can decide to say, I forgive you. Or when I say I promise, the other person can decide whether or not to express their trust in my promise. When when one person expresses anger, the other person can decide a response, if they will give a response. And so in this way, expressing anger is like doing a speech act. It cannot be successful or it cannot come off unless there is an uptake, unless there is a response. So if I run around the street saying, I apologize, people are gonna think I'm crazy and they're not going to um give me any uptake besides you know calling me crazy which they rightfully would <laughs> but when women express anger in a justified situation there is often no uptake whether or not it is justified in her ideas because our anger is not understandable as a concept uh fry gives the example of a woman who had her car fixed and then at a gas station a man was messing with her car she told him to stop and he responds not with oh okay my bad no he calls her crazy a crazy bitch or something like this it's not the uptake that is warranted by the anger it's dismissing the anger and so she's just left standing there confused with her anger and the other person the man just denied that she was even angry at all in fact she's crazy so Fry says, as long as women are operating in a, the woman's sector or operating in a woman's realm as a mother or a caretaker, we can be angry and our anger will be tolerated, but it won't be taken seriously because everything in a woman's sector is trivial and unimportant. So um, she says one of the women that she was discussing with when she was writing this essay went home and she thought about anger this this other woman and she reflected on the times that she was angry and she noticed that the situations where she was understood where her anger was intelligible followed the floor plan of her house so for example in the kitchen she could be angry and her anger was intelligible she would get uptake there would be a um equal response or something like this. In the living room, it was like a 50-50 chance. In the bedroom, she could not be angry and be intelligible, be taken seriously. And I strongly recommend women to do this. Reflect on your anger and reflect on when your anger is intelligible, understood, when it receives uptake by other people. And I'm, I'm guessing actually the first step to this is learning how to express our anger. <laughs> okay, over to you, Kara. Okay, great. There's a lot of talk in the chat about how we Americans use the word mad to mean angry. <laughs> There's a lot of chat about that. It's really fun. Um, okay, so the next one is called Some Reflections on Separatism and Power. And as of this current reading, this essay is hands down my favorite essay of the book. It wasn't when I first read the book. When I first read the book, it was the essay on oppression that Julia first talked about uh, that, that was definitely my favorite. Um, but it is now. If you read nothing else from this book, please read this essay because it has, first of all, it's just brilliant um, on its own, but it has so much relevance to today. So it begins with what she means by separatism. For purposes of this particular essay, she does not mean lesbian separatism, although separatism certainly includes that, and Julie is going to talk about that with regard to a later essay. But for purposes of this one, she literally means any act, psychological or otherwise, of separating women, separating ourselves from the centrality of men. It can mean psychologically cleansing ourselves from the centrality of men. 
It can include saying no. And I was gonna read a long list of what she means by separatism, but I won't read it because it's too long for now. But she literally means having an abortion, getting your own bank account, going to a domestic violence shelter, saying no to a date, divorcing a husband. It just means centering women and getting accustomed to centering women and saying no to the demands of men generally. And I feel like that's very important from a feminist perspective because at the core of radical feminism is that we center women always. We center ourselves and each other. And that is the very first act of separatism. Um, she goes on and a lot of this essay is about male paratism, paratism, right? Par ah, parasitism. Yeah, they're parasites. They're parasites. <laughs> she talks so persuasively and convincingly. And I just thought um, devastatingly about how men are parasites on women in society. And it's so good. And please read it. It's too long for me to read here, but, but please do read it because it's so good. And it's so well-written and I just love her thinking and her analyses and her writing style. And then she goes on and she talks about the connection of separatism to power. And she talks about women seizing power in two ways, which are so relevant to today. One is by limiting the access of men to our spaces. And she talks about how the creation of female-only spaces was a very big deal for feminists decades ago. And um, she talks about how men often really don't like it when women demand female-only meetings. When women in the second wave were having women-only meetings, men didn't really like that very much. And they sort of demanded to know why and they demanded access and Sometimes men would like creep in under the bleachers and listen in on what women were saying. And the reason that that matters is that when we limit men's access to our spaces, we are seizing the means of power. And that had relevance to her then and to other women and feminists then. And it has so much relevance to us now. The other thing she talks about in terms of seizing power with relation to separatism is the power to define. Men historically define and women have not had the power to define. And feminism is about seizing the power to define ourselves and to define our world and to define our spaces. And uh, that obviously has a lot of relevance today as well as women are being completely robbed of the ability to define ourselves as women. And so reading this today was just so enlightening because Fry in 1983 obviously wasn't dealing with the problem of men claiming access to our spaces and our language by claiming to be women. They weren't mostly claiming, they weren't claiming to be women. They were just men being men. And today we have the problem of men claiming access to our spaces and our language by pretending to be women. So this has so much relevance today. Um, okay, and then I will just briefly read the conclusion and send it back to you. I just think this is so good and so important. When women separate, withdraw, break out, regroup, transcend, shove aside, step outside, migrate, say no, we are simultaneously controlling access and defining. We are doubly insubordinate since neither of these is permitted. And access and definition are fundamental ingredients in the alchemy of power. So we are doubly and radically insubordinate. So I wanna encourage women to seize the power to uh, hold our spaces and to define. She was, Marie Long is, so, is saying she was so prescient. She absolutely was. It's astonishing to reread this in the context of 2022. Go ahead, Julia. Oh no, we're, we're doing the next one together. I could start the next one and then Great. we could trade Go. off. The Go next one it. might be a little bit difficult because the next one is about race. It's called, uh, it has a long title. It's called 
on being white, thinking toward a feminist understanding of race and supremacy. Okay, so it might be a little bit difficult for us to talk about because both Kara and I have white privilege. We benefit from what is called whiteness. In this essay, Fry um, wants to ask the question, what does it mean to be white? She's always trying to find a clear definition of these concepts. So what does that mean? What is the privilege of race? What is race? I noticed that through this essay, uh, some of the cautions that Fry um, offered in the very beginning in the introduction could be applied here. She recognizes the fact that she is also someone who benefits from race privilege because of whiteness. Um, so with that in mind, let's begin. Uh, Fry says, conceptions of race and of whiteness have a lot to do with the fetishes about pigmentation, skin color. But while a light skin color might get a person counted as white, it doesn't make them white. This is uh, relevant to the topic of passing, um, which I'm sure a lot of US Americans are familiar with. Uh, people of, for example, African descent could pass as white and be afforded some of the race privileges that uh, white people could enjoy. But she says whiteness is a social or political construct. It's, um, it's not technically a construct of, I don't know, skin color. It's based more on the political, um, a membership in a political or social class. And the people who construct the idea of whiteness are primarily a certain group of males. Uh, Kara, would you like to pick up here? I can continue. Um, go ahead and continue. I've got a couple things to say, but if you want to continue, feel free. Okay. Um, she then talks about ignorance. Um, one can, she says, one can and one should try to educate yourself and to overcome the terrible limitations imposed by ignorance, which is inherent in racism. Um, it says, it's, uh, she says, it's important for us to learn about other people, but not as objects of study. Um, she says, while educating oneself about the experiences and perspectives of people, of the other's peoples, one who one is ignorant about, you should also be studying your own ignorance. Um, and she urges us to recognize the verb to ignore, which is part of the word ignorance. So ignorance works like this. It creates the conditions which ensure its continuance. Some people just stick their head in the sand whenever they are confronted with a difficult um, topic or theory. And so they maintain their ignorance. Mm, let me see. Ah, and then she talks about attention. What we put our attention to is uh, something that offers us the opportunity to gain knowledge. So a lot, of, um, a lot of white women have a lot of attention on white men. <laughs> and this is a lot to do with our race privilege, our racism and our inability to understand these concepts. Race and racism also have a great deal to do with white women's attachment to white men. And uh, then she talks about this idea of how the ideas of, um, how do you say, racial supremacy are intertwined with the idea of male supremacy. Um, white women belong to the group of women from which men of the racially dominant group choose their mates. And so white women are given access to some of the benefits that uh, the racially dominant male group has. Uh, this also includes a false hope of becoming dominant with the men as their equals. Fry then criticizes the idea of equality for all or equality feminism. Do we want to be equal with any other group of men? 
besides white men? Would we, she says, uh, do we ever say we want social and, and economic equality with, for example, Chicanos? No, we want social equality with the white men. But that only means that we want to be able to be the dominant, for lack of a better word, oppressor. And that's not what feminism is about. Anything else you would add? Yeah, no, I think you pretty much covered it all. And I will say that I, I think she, she talks about race and race privilege throughout the whole thing. It's just that this particular essay really focuses on it. And she ends it by saying that she understands that in feminism, given her race privilege, she is going to get it wrong a lot of the time. And she is going to be uh, reasonably and understandably criticized by black women and other women of color in her feminism. And, and she just confronts them and she just deals with it directly and she doesn't shy away from it. Yeah, so, it's a pleasure. Julia, we're coming up on four minutes until the top of the hour and you have to talk about lesbian separatism and then we have to conclude, go. Okay, okay, really quick. Uh, <laughs> oh no, let me try to bring up this uh, fantastic quote about separatism. And she talks about lesbian feminism and gay rights. I'll try to make this really sh short. Some people think that it makes sense for lesbians to support gay men and gay men to support lesbians. But in fact, a lot of gay male culture coincides and complements and is the same with male supremacist culture. Therefore, lesbians have a perfect right not to support gay men and gay men obviously don't support lesbians. I was thinking about um, the LGB Alliance in the UK. I know there was a court case recently where two, I think it was one or two fantastic lesbian speakers who founded the LGB Alliance actually gave testimony. And I'm thinking, is this really true today? Is it true that um, gay rights organizations are dominantly male? Or has that changed in current times because of a surge of interest and support for feminism in the lesbian community? That would be a question to put to the audience to think about later. That's as short as I can make it. <laughs> that was great. And Sheila is saying that um, her stuff on gay men in the book is wonderful. And I, I really appreciated that chapter. And, and we, don't, we just don't have time to talk about it today uh, too much. But Sheila's suggesting a whole session on that, which I think would be great. Um, be so good. Thanking us. Um, so the, the very last chapter is called To Be and Be Seen, The Politics of Reality. And in this chapter, it seems to me that she's really focused on the problem of understanding what the word lesbian means. And the, she, she talks about the difficulty of, of definition and, and then ends more generally on the problem of what a woman is, which I just found to be so ironic given the contemporary state of things. Julia, do you wanna say anything about the concluding essay? The concluding essay is so wonderful. Um, she does talk a lot about what lesbian means uh, because she is a separatist and because this is one of the uh, the core concepts of her theory about liberation is to separate. And I found it so funny. She went through a bunch of dictionaries trying to find an appropriate definition for lesbian and none of them are either logical or applicable to actual lesbian lives. And I will say the first thing that I ever read by Marilyn Fry was her essay on lesbian sex. And this idea is touched upon in the last chapter. What does it mean for lesbians to have sex if sex is defined as involving a penis? <laughs> what does it mean? We need concepts that correctly describe our lives and experiences. And currently the linguistic confines or the conceptual uh, boundaries are limiting us from doing this. So do we really exist? That's her, her funny question. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for doing this with me. And I think I agree with a lot of women in the chat. There should be many more sessions on her writings. It's just so much to cover and so good. 100%. Thanks so much for doing this with me, Julia. 
Yay. Okay. All right. I guess that's the end. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.